0: Well, good morning. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, You've gotten to meet Sam. He didn't get to preach today, so he wanted to do announcements long. Um, He is um, kind of our starting pitcher of the preaching rotation. And so he's taken us through uh, the first uh, eight innings of the Book of Ruth. And I'm here on the ninth inning to close things up. Uh, If you're a Mariners fan, I I hope I'm a little bit better than their closers for the most part. So we'll see how how it goes. If you're a Mariners fan... The book of Ruth is all for you because it is all about brokenness and redemption. So, um, all right, uh, we are going to conclude our series of Ruth today. Like I said, it is uh, called Hope. And we started out by seeing that this is uh, a book, as Sam said, that takes place during the time of Judges where the scripture says there is no king in, in all the land and that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So it's a lawless time, it is a broken time, Uh, there is famine, there is sin, there is idolatry at the family level, at the individual level, and at the national level. So it's, it's, like I said, a dark, dark time. And so we come to this story of Ruth, almost like a love story in the middle of the Great Depression, to see that God gives us a brief snapshot of hope through one small family in one small town uh, amidst all this brokenness to um, actively work for the good of his people and for the glory of his name across the whole world. And so now that we're at chapter 4, it's appropriate for us to kind of do like you would in any miniseries and do the previously on the book of Ruth um, and kind of go through all that. So we know where we're at if you haven't been here. And in chapter 1, we saw that God gave us hope in suffering book of Ruth starts off uh, with a famine in the land and in the town of Bethlehem. And we meet this guy, Elimelech, his wife Naomi. He has two sons, Malon and Kilion. And he is so fearful of this famine that he moves his whole family to a foreign pagan nation of Moab. And when he gets there, in a very short amount of time, he dies. And his sons are left there with no father, and his wife is left there with no husband, and these sons end up marrying Moabite women, which in the time of, of, uh, of the Israelites, that would have been almost illegal. So they're marrying people that don't love the God of the Bible, um, and so now we have this poor widow in a foreign country, um, and very quickly after they marry these women, they die as well. Two generations of men wiped out in a family in one episode. And so Naomi's alone, and one of her pagan Moabite daughter-in-laws says, I'm here with you. I'll stay with you. I'll love you. I'll care for you. And more than that, I will forsake my sinful idolatry, and I will love and worship the God of the Bible. So we see this bit of hope. So Ruth, um, who's the daughter-in-law, and Naomi, they come back to Bethlehem And the whole town is there to see them come in because, you know, this is their hometown. They come in and Naomi tells the town, don't even call me Naomi. Call me Mara, which means bitter because she says, the Lord has dealt bitterly with me and he's brought calamity upon me. So then chapter two, we see that God gives us hope in his providence that that Ruth uh, actually goes out and does what she says to care for Naomi, and she goes to glean in the fields, which is essentially kind of an Old Testament welfare work program uh, for the poor. And she goes into the fields, and by God's providence, just happens to end up in the field of a man uh, who is part of a Limelech's clan. And um, it just happens um, that uh, he shows up, while uh she's working uh this guy's name is boaz and and it just happens that boaz has heard of ruth's character in caring for naomi he's kind of wanted to meet this gal and he meets her and as soon as he meets her he kind of invites her on a lunch date takes her out let's get some food in fact i'm going to give you some um uh, some leftovers uh for your mother-in-law naomi tell her boaz says hi and the story goes on and and Even though both of them acted individually in their circumstances, it's God that provides for the material needs of Ruth and Naomi. And so then some time passes. Uh, It's harvest time. We get to chapter 3, and we see that there is hope in actually petitioning God. Something very odd uh, happens in that um, Naomi uh, tells Ruth to go get dressed up. Uh, and to after a giant harvest party where Boaz will be eating and drinking, and it says, "Be merry in his heart." Um, she says, "Okay, when he's when he's all um, sleeping off uh, the party, just kind of get all dressed up really nice in the middle of the night and go crawl into bed with him, and then just do whatever he says." Okay, that's odd uh, because I'm doing premarriage counseling for a young couple now, and they have signed a covenant saying they will not do that. Um, And so it's kind of an odd instruction to give uh, to a a, a young single woman. But um, by God's grace, there's no sin. And Boaz says, yes, I will redeem you. I will marry you. I will take care of your mother-in-law, Naomi. And more than that, um, there's an issue, though. There's a catch. There's somebody else in our family who has a right to do this first, and I need to take care of it. And so chapter 3 closes with him saying, I, I'm going to take care of this for you, and I'm going to do it quickly. He sends Ruth back home. Uh, again, no sin. Um, and, uh, and we are now in Ruth chapter 4, so if you would please turn with me. We'll pick up the last chapter of our story here. Start Ruth chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. It's the next morning. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, "'Turn aside, friends, sit down here.'" He turned aside and sat down. And then he took men, uh, ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here, and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there's no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I'll redeem it. Then Boaz said, all right, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. All right, so like like I said, Boaz makes good on his word. At the end of chapter 3, he says, I'm going to resolve this, and he doesn't hesitate. Right in the morning, he goes to the city gate. And you need to kind of understand a little bit of the significance of the city gate. See, in a town like Bethlehem, even though it was small in population, maybe a couple hundred people, it was also very, very small in size. So there really wasn't any place, no big parks, no city uh, squares, uh, no big meeting areas uh, for people to, to meet and conduct business publicly. The only real open space that had lots of foot traffic was the gate of the city. And so it was a place that was obviously used for protection and for commerce as people are coming and going. But the gate also served um, for people to do individual business, for the business of the town to be done. and be kind of like a city hall. And the gate was also used as, as a civil and criminal court as well. So, Boaz is kind of waiting here at the gate, and the way I see it, he's, he's kind of like a spider just, just, just spinning his web, and poor unsuspecting redeemer guy, who's probably just on his way to work in the morning, gets caught in Boaz's web. This guy's walking to work, and Boaz is like, hey, come on in here. Sit down, so-and-so, it says. Sit down, friend. And then all of a sudden, Boaz grabs ten elders and gets them there in the city. So this guy's Just think about it. You're driving to work, and and, and you get pulled over, and they take you to real estate court. And and all of a sudden now there's this guy who's like a, a real estate agent and says, hey, guess what? I have an investment opportunity for you. Will you sign this contract in front of all these lawyers right here? It's a little intimidating, right? Boaz, this is not a friendly conversation. This is official business. Boaz is ready and confident for this to go his way. Guy's probably a little shell-shocked, to be quite honest. He knew a little bit about the story. He is part of the family, but certainly was not prepared on this day when he's going into work after the harvest party to get called in for this. So, like I said, Boaz is confident that this is going to go well. And part of how we know that is I did some research in in, kind of Old Testament real estate laws. I'm sure you guys do that all the time. Um, And he actually didn't need ten guys. Uh, to be there to seal this deal. He only needed two or three witnesses, uh, to be quite honest. But ten guys is how many witnesses or judges are necessary to conduct a wedding. So Boaz is ready. He's got the end game prepared. He's ready to go. And he lays out, like I said, this investment opportunity. Poor widowed Naomi, she, she does own some land, but unfortunately she's so old she, she's not able to farm it. So it provides no income for her. It's just this parcel of land sitting out there doing nothing. And he's saying her hope is to sell it to you, you to give her some money so that she can basically retire off the income uh, the rest of her life. So she's basically cashing out a 401k or quite literally, excuse me, um, selling the family farm uh, just to pay her bills. And so for the redeemer, it's actually a pretty good deal. Uh, like I said, Old Testament real estate laws um, said that essentially family land could not be sold forever. If you sold some of your land, the next generation would have a right to come back and buy it back into the family. Or you could wait uh, a certain number of years until what they called the year of Jubilee, where essentially all debt was forgiven uh, and you got the land back. So any real estate transaction wasn't ownership. It was really more like a lease. So for this redeemer... He does know one thing about Naomi, and that is she has no heirs. So he's like, oh, if I buy this land from her, I can farm it. I can get all the income off the land, keep it for myself. And then when when Naomi dies, I get the land free and clear. No lease. There's no family to give it back to. It's his. He's thinking, all right, I get to get money, and I get to make my land larger so that when he dies, he actually gets to have Um, a larger inheritance to pass on as a legacy in his family, a larger kingdom, if you will. So he is all about it, and he just eagerly, publicly says, yes, sign me up, let's close this out. So then Boaz kind of gives him the fine print, right? You ever been working on on a mortgage or working on some sort of business deal, and then the fine print comes up? Boaz throws in the poison pill. He says that... Once the Redeemer buys the field from Naomi, he is also buying it from Ruth. And since Ruth is uh, also a widow, um, that he has to provide for Ruth, provide for Naomi, and provide a son that at the end of his days is going to inherit this land back from him and and be in, in Malon's line and not in his own. And so this poor guy, well, I say this poor guy, but it's, it's actually kind of a weird application of the laws. And again, I know, I, I know you guys all spend so much time studying Old Testament um, you know, land laws. But it would not have been, made sense for these two things to be tied together. But we've got to remember, this is Judges. And it was a lawless time. People were ignorant of God's law. So this guy, ignorant of the law, just kind of accepts it. Oh, I guess this is the deal. And he says, I, I can't do this. I can't afford to do this because now instead of getting all the money himself and getting the land uh, himself, he'll have to pay Naomi. He'll have to work the land the rest of his life and support Naomi and support Ruth and support a new baby who's not even going to carry on his name. And then when he dies, all that work would be for nothing, for his kingdom. So he's super excited about this deal when it looks like he's going to get wealthy and it looks like his kingdom's going to expand. But as soon as it's thrown down that he's going to have to actually sacrifice for someone else, he's going to have to actually work for someone else, he wants no part of it. He simply um, can't do it. And so he says he won't do it. He can't do it. He can't afford it. It will ruin his legacy. And ironically, this guy who is so concerned and consumed with his own legacy, his own wealth, his own kingdom, is actually not named in this text at all. Here we are 5,000 years later, and and this guy who's so consumed with his own fame, we we don't even know his name. We don't even know who he is. So we know Boaz. And why do we know Boaz? Well, we know Boaz because he stands up for Naomi and Ruth, not only as a redeemer, but also as a type of advocate for them. And and, and he stands up uh, as well as like a high priest. I want you to get this picture, Naomi... Naomi didn't have to go to the gate to negotiate her own land deal. If you're ignorant of real estate, if you're not a deal maker, if you don't have a good real estate agent, you try to go sell your land, you're probably going to get a bad deal. Naomi doesn't have to do that. She has uh, Boaz stepping up to advocate for her. And Ruth, like I said, she's a Moabite. She she basically has the same status in their country as an illegal immigrant here in the U.S. She can't even convene a court to come together to, to work on her behalf. She has no legal status. Boaz does. Boaz acts as that high priest, and he bridges the legal gap between uh, Ruth, the Moabite, and, the, and the, the, the Jewish judges of the town. So he's there, he's stepping in for her. And, and, and even, um, even just by standing up for Naomi and Ruth, he gives them hope for redemption simply by saying, Don't worry. You're not going to have to speak for yourself. I'll speak for you. I'll stand before the judges for you. I'll make this go in your favor for you. You just step back and watch me work. Reading this this week, and it was incredibly uh, timely for me as I understood just how much hope that gives to know that you don't have to speak for yourself, but that Christ stands in your place. I um, share an embarrassing story with you that that pertains to this, and that is... um, Three weeks ago, uh, I, we brought our newborn uh, premature baby daughter, Haddon Grace, home uh, from Wenatchee, drove across the mountains, uh, get home, and uh, immediately I need to go drive down to Kirkland, to Evergreen Hospital, to get a baby scale because we have to weigh her every feed to make sure we, she gets at least you know, 35 milligrams of, of, uh, of milk and nourishment. So I'm driving down there, uh, and it's been a long, stressful couple of weeks for our family. I'm driving down there myself to go get this for my wife, and I'm two blocks away from the hospital, and I get pulled over. Now, I saw the cop. I wasn't speeding. I didn't run any red lights. My tabs weren't expired. I'm like, what is going on here? And he comes to the window. Roll my window down. You Christopher Rich? Whoa. If you don't know, if the cop knows your name, it's bad. Okay? <laughs> if he knows you, he's hunting for you, that's bad. I'm like, yes, and you are. How do you know my name? What's going on? Well, um, Mr. Rich, um, are you aware that you're driving with a suspended license and I have the right to arrest you right here and impound your uh, motor vehicle? No, I'm not aware of that in any way, shape, or form. You want to go back and check the record again? See, I'm a good person, I don't do bad things. Um, and so. Uh, He goes back and checks the record, and he says, yes, Mr. Rich, um, according to the state of Washington, uh, you have sinned against us in the manner of uh, having an unpaid speeding ticket from June of last year. I said, well, I did get a speeding ticket in June of last year driving to work. Just 70. wasn't that bad. Um, And I did get a speeding ticket. I said, and I paid that ticket in in early July of 2011. Well, Mr. Rich, our records show that you owe us a debt and that your license is suspended and uh, your status with the state is illegal. So... Okay, it was not quite that traumatic. Um, so, don't even know what to do about that. We'll just move on. So he, Eric, you okay? All right, Eric's good. All right. So, I was that terrified, though. I, he's like, you're going to, I'm going to get arrested, and my poor wife's not going to have, you know, a, a nursing pump or, or a baby scale, and this is horrible. And he gives me a little bit of grace. He says, you've been cooperative today. Oh, really? Of course I've been cooperative. What am I going to do, start a fight? Um, He's like, you've been cooperative today. I won't arrest you, uh, but you need to get this matter resolved. Yes, and amen, I'll get this matter resolved. So I go the next day. Now I'm aware of my sin against the state of Washington, uh, where I had previously been ignorant. I go and I do all my research, and I come, and lo and behold, according to the law of Washington, I paid my speeding ticket the day after it was due. And because of that, there was a $50 late charge. That I was unaware of. Just like some of us have some sin in our lives that we don't even think is sin, and it just carries on, and it grew and grew. And you'd think, okay, I'd get some sort of notice in the mail saying, pay this 50 bucks. My license says I still live in Arlington. I live in Lake Stevens. My license says that we rent our in-laws' house from us, and my in-laws, for some reason, never gave me this notice. They must not like me. I think they are hoping this was going to happen. Um, so never got this notice, and lo and behold, because of $50, my license is suspended... And so I immediately spent the next morning hours and hours researching this, paying everything off, getting my license reinstated, all this time trying to advocate for myself, getting everything done I needed to, doing the, to clean myself up and, 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 and erase this embarrassing uh, incident. And I, I did that. The only issue was I still committed a crime, and that was driving with a suspended license. And so on Tuesday, I had to appear before Kirkland Municipal Court. And so I was nervous because I don't have a lot of experience being a criminal. Um, and so I was really ignorant as to how this was all going to go down. And so all day, all morning, rather, it's, it's early in the morning, I, I show up to the court, and I look around at all these nasty, dirty sinners that have committed crimes, like me. Um, and I'm, you know, I, mean, I at least put a tie on, you know, come on, buddy. Um, and, 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 but then I noticed that several of them, because this is criminal court, this isn't like traffic ticket court, um, some of them have lawyers. I'm like, Oh, wait, should I have gotten a lawyer? Like, I didn't have a lawyer. I didn't have any advocate standing up for me. I mean, I've watched a few episodes of Law and Order, but, you know, I, and I took a business law class, but not going to help me. And so I get to the courtroom, and there's a young man there uh, who's a, a, a recent uh, lawyer, and he is contracted with the city of Kirkland, and he says, You, Mr. Rich. And this time I'm a little more excited. Yes, I am Mr. Rich. Uh, do you know me? Yes, uh, we know you. I have researched your case. Uh, I have seen that you've done everything to radically repent uh, of the sins you've committed. He didn't say that. But that's what he meant. Um, I see that you've, you've done everything you can to clear this up. I have already talked to the prosecutor. Uh, we have settled this matter. Uh, you're, you're, uh, this case will criminally be dismissed. We will get up before the judge. You will not have to say a word. I will speak for you, and this will all be taken care of. <sighs> Very excited. That's what Christ does for us. I didn't have to say a word to the judge other than, yes, I'm Mr. Rich. It was beautiful. It would have been even more beautiful if he had paid the $250 fine the court gave me for the infraction. Um, That would have been even better. But criminally, legally, it's dismissed. Huge blessing. You need to understand that even though, like I said, I was ignorant of my sin, ignorance of my sin did not excuse me of anything. And at the moment that that sin was made aware of me, my reaction was to radically repent and do what I could, and yet there was something missing. I still had to be settled legally, and so uh, I love that he was able to step in for me. And we see that Jesus steps in for us as a high priest. In Hebrews 9, 11 through 12, it says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, it's not of the creation, Old Testament reference, uh, he entered once for all into the holy places. Not by means of the blood of goats and of calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. It's beautiful. He also steps in for us as an advocate. He says here, I love this, First John 2, 1 and 2. My little children, you're so nervous. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, and not pay their speeding ticket, um, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. More than an advocate, he is a propitiation of our sins. Fancy word means he sacrifices for our sins. Not for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Wow. It's beautiful. That's, the God, that's what Jesus does for us. As, to, to clear us of our debt of sin. And I think when we, when we come to a place like Ruth 4, and we see this, this whole story of Ruth, I think we want to relate to Naomi and Ruth. Because we see them as, as kind of humble and downtrodden. We don't see them as criminals. They never really did anything wrong. You know, uh, and, and Ruth is, is even younger and attractive. She actually has something to offer Boaz And so, uh, who's an older, you know, single guy. And so we just kind of think of this like with Jesus. Like, well, Jesus, I know you're lonely in heaven. Uh, I'll come and be your friend if you just kind of take care of me a little bit uh, and and everything will go well. Well, the the reality is our true condition, our true debt, our, our, our true righteousness before God is so much greater than the distance between wealthy Boaz and poor Ruth and Naomi. Because the, the fact of the matter is, even if we don't think we are, like I didn't think I was, we're criminals before God. We are actually enemies of the righteous God because of our sin and because of our brokenness. We're not just good people that had bad things happen to us and are sympathetic. We're actually enemies. And God lays this out for us. I, didn't, I don't make this stuff up because it's not popular. Uh, we see this uh, in Romans 5, 6 through 11. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. You're saved in Christ from the wrath of God. No Christ equals wrath. That's our natural condition. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by his death of his son, much more now than we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've now received reconciliation. I'm reconciled now to the city of Kirkland. We're good. In Christ, we're now reconciled to God. The thing is, I know we want to see ourselves as Ruth and Naomi, They're popular, they're sympathetic. I want you to think in more current terms of who we are before God. There's been two stories that have dominated the news for the last two weeks. One is the shooting in Aurora, Colorado. We're all familiar with that. And the other, if you want to get away from that news story because it's dark, it's disgusting, you just want to watch some sports and turn on ESPN, all they're talking about is Penn State. We all know what happened to Penn State, right? Good with that? Okay, we'll go into that. The reality are is, before a righteous and just God, we are not sympathetic and attractive like Ruth and Naomi. We are as reprehensible as James Holmes and as disgusting as Jerry Sandusky. That is who we are. That is what our sin makes us. And that is what makes the gospel of Jesus Christ so scandalous, because He redeems us anyway. None of us want to redeem those guys. But Jesus redeems us, even though he sees us as way worse. We have to understand the depth of our sin and understand that redemption gives us hope because we're not just cleared of our legal debt. We're not just cleared of our punishment of wrath and return to this kind of neutral state where, okay, I'm, I'm good again. I'll kind of go do my own thing. He does so much more than that. That lawyer, he helped me get cleared of my debt he didn't establish a relationship with me. We didn't go get lunch afterwards. We don't hang out in our buddies. And yet Jesus redeems us so much more that we're not just lost individuals that are neutral before God, but he actually brings us into a loving family with a loving father over all. We're not part of a people. And so we have more than just hope in our debt being removed, but we have hope in our reconciliation to God. It it, it lays out this way in Ruth 4 as hope in marriage. Go back to Ruth 4, looking verses 7 through, we'll go all the way to, uh, to 12. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, the Redeemer drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belong to Elimelech and all that belong to Kilion and Malon. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I've bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses, this day. And so, all the people who were at the gate and all the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who's coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. And may you act worthy in, in Epaphra and renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. All right, so we've seen now that Boaz and the Redeemer, they kind of have this Hebrew flip-flop exchange, and they they kind of seal the deal, right? That's how they did legal contracts back then. It's a little odd. Like I said, I spent some time researching. This actually comes out of Deuteronomy 25. And and, and there, uh, the symbolism was one of humiliation, where a man who didn't do his duty to redeem his family would hand over his sandal and then a widow would come and spit in his face. Okay. This did not go well for the guy who was just trying to commute to work and has this court <laughs> brought about him. And yet he does get off a little easy because he doesn't get spit upon. And so he does kind of give up his rights of redemption, kind of walks out with his tail between his legs. He's exited the scene. And now it is the Boaz show. Boaz is the king. He redeems all. He makes it all better. He buys it all. And he says he does it for the purpose, not for his glory, not for his name necessarily, but to raise the name of the dead. To restore a family who was who going to perish from the earth. And so Naomi's family and Ruth will not die off, but they'll live on. And he does it publicly. So the whole town can see. You know, news of what was happening, I'm sure, spread quickly. Starts off as real estate court, ends up, the whole town is gathered around. They're all seeing what's going on. And all the witnesses of the people, they see this story. They see this story of death and suffering is now one of redemption and restoration. And they they recognize now this statusless, illegal immigrant from Moab is now part of their people. And she's even more than just part of their people. They equate her because of who Boaz is and because of his glory. They equate her with the queens of Israel, Rachel and Leah, the big matriarchs that built a whole nation. They say, you'll be blessed like them. And because of how glorious and how gracious Boaz was, they praise his name. They say throughout the region, throughout the town, let your name be blessed. And so they even say... um, They praise God, right? Because Boaz is great, but God is greater. And they show that, wow, God's doing what he did with Boaz and with Ruth is just as crazy and as weird as what what Judah and Tamar did back in Genesis 38. If you got the time, hilarious story. Definitely read that. Uh, Genesis 38. We see God providing hope in the marriage of a foreigner to a redeemer. And we see the hope because there's more to the gospel than just being forgiven of our sin and our debt, but there's we get to be in restored relationship with the Creator of the universe. See, our hope comes from knowing that God has more compassion for us as enemy sinners than Boaz has for Ruth, and He pays an even greater price through through His Son Jesus that. Jesus dies on the cross, he pays that debt of sin, and not only to clear our debt, but to purchase us from slavery of sin. And then after removing us from sin and slavery, he seals us to the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit to be united with the creator of the universe forever. Eternal security is beautiful. And we see it. We see it. Paul lays it out in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? You have God in you if you're a Christian? Whom you have from God, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. God is a God of redemption. He has the will and the power to redeem the bitter, the broken, and the outcast into perfect fellowship and relationship with Him. And we love this picture. This picture of Ruth and Boaz and their marriage is a beautiful picture of the gospel. And what's been awesome, to, if you're part of this church, our church is honestly about the size of Bethlehem was back then. And if you've been part of this church for a while, you have seen firsthand at the city gates this story played out time and time again as widows have been married to godly men. As single mothers have been married to godly men. And these these men in our church and in the churches of our network, some of which are now raising the children of other men. Their name won't go on through that child, but they're raising them because they love them. And we see so much more, even as beautiful as it's been, that in these Ruth and Boaz marriages, that sometimes they even have children of their own together. And some of them are hoping to have children together. And and, and it's a beautiful thing. So for those of you who have been restored with a Boaz-like figure, who have gotten to be a Boaz-like figure, God bless you literally. But for those of you who have not, for the widows, for the single moms, for the single men, for the childless, for those who have had loss, loss of siblings, of parents, of children, those of you that feel bitter and empty, I pray you don't look at this story and put your hope in getting a Boaz or your hope in being a Boaz to someone else. We don't pray to Jesus hoping he'll send us a Boaz. We look here at Boaz in this story as a reminder of Jesus Christ who already has redeemed us who already has restored us and has already already done the work for us to bring us into right relationship with him i want you to know jesus is the prize the other stuff is just secondary it's important and it moves us to tears at times but it's not as important as being in right standing with the creator of the universe who loved you from before the world was formed that is what matters. So we have hope. We have hope in Jesus Christ that he doesn't just restore us. He doesn't just redeem us for the purposes of living a good life for our own. He restores us to share that hope he's given us and to share that blessing he's given us with others. So we see as the story begins to close, we see hope in service. Come back with me now, if you would, to chapter 4, 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. He went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who's not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, whom loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. So we meet this new guy, this new kid, Obed. Boaz and Ruth have gotten married. There's a great celebration around that. A little while later, they get this gift from God. But the focus is now no longer on Boaz and Ruth. It's on Naomi. And so Community, her hometown, the place where she grew up, the people that knew her best have seen this story and are rejoicing with her because they've already watched the bitterness. They watched her come into town and curse God and say, Stay away from me. And they're so excited to see her be restored, to see her joy return. They're so excited. I hope that this church is a Bethlehem to you. That this is a place that you know that there are people around here who are ready to rejoice in what God has done or will do in your life to restore you. That they will cry tears with you when there's the bitterness and the loss and the famine, and they will rejoice with you when God turns it around and redeems it. This is a place. This is is the town that we're together. And so Naomi's gone from famine to fullness. She's now fully restored and overflowing with joy. And more than that, she's a recognized part of a family. She's loved by people around her. And more than loved, she's able to be loving to others. That is huge. Her story doesn't end with her retiring with, with Boaz's money and going to the casino and blowing it all or getting a retirement home or living on a beach. Her story ends after the bitter loss of two of her children raising another son. She's a nursemaid to the day she dies and ends up being the great-grandmother of King David. That is beautiful. We have seen Naomi's stories time and time and time again in this little Bethlehem of our church here at Damascus Road where people have come in. There's been bitterness. They've been apart from God. There's been sin, even adultery within marriages. There has been addictions to alcohol, to pornography, to to drugs. There has been years and decades of sexual immorality and and perverse lifestyles. And people come in to this place and they are weary and they are bitter. And they say, depart from me. They give me space. I want nothing to do with you. I've fought and I've fought and I've fought and I've failed. And I don't want to fight anymore. And then Jesus steps in as their advocate, and redeems them, and gives them hope. And so we've seen marriages that were bitter be restored. We've seen people who have been perverted be gracious and loving to those around them. We've seen addictions broken, and people go from idolaters to either substance or a false god, to true worshipers of the God of the universe. And we know that they're moving away from bitterness when they stop being a consumer and they move towards health and they start serving and loving those around them. And this place stops being about them and it starts being about what God can do through them to share that same hope, that same love, and that same graciousness that was given to them. It's beautiful and that is what I want for you. If you are at that place of bitterness, I want you to know you can have reconciliation. If you've been reconciled and you've been redeemed, I want you to have some joy that leads you to pour into and love the people around you. That is what this place is to be. That is what God's people are to be. Because I don't want you to just feel good about yourself knowing that your debt's redeemed. I don't want you to just feel like you're valuable or you're a good person. I want you to know in Jesus Christ, you are actually valuable. He tells us. He reminds us, because we forget so often and so easily. He reminds us in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. He says, you are a chosen race. I've chosen you. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. And once you've not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. This is beautiful. Ruth serves Naomi in her poverty. Boaz serves Ruth in his wealth. And Naomi is now poured into and restored and healthy and joyful enough that she's pouring into Obed. And God does it to preserve a royal line of redemption throughout all of history. It's beautiful. And so as Ruth ends, we get to kind of start returning to the 20,000 foot level again. We raise up and we start seeing what the implications for this little story are for the entire nation of Israel and for the entire world. Amidst the chaos of Judges, bad economic times, dark times, there's a king coming. We see it. Let's close out Ruth 4. Here we go. Verse 18. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Herzon. Herzon fathered Ram. uh, Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. And Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. So throughout the book of Ruth, it's God that reigns supreme. In the midst of national chaos, yes and amen, he cares about his people. He cares about the individual circumstances of his people. And so we see he takes care of Naomi, he takes care of Ruth, he takes care of Boaz, all without never forgetting the plan he has, not just for the individuals, but for the nations of the world. He he loves us as individuals and cares enough to redeem the world. And so famine in Bethlehem, death of Elimelech, the death and loss of two children, all serve in God's plan to get the nation of Israel to their King David. And so we get to King David and we see he's a, they say he's a man after God's own heart. He's a good king. He restores the glory of the nation and yet he is not perfect. He is not God and his deliverance is brief at best. And so Israel and the rest of the world is left waiting For a better David to come. By God's grace. We have the hindsight and God's word. To look at Matthew 1 and see. That this genealogy that starts in Ruth. Doesn't end with David. But goes all the way to our Lord Jesus Christ. And the king shows up. In dark, dark times. And the king stands in the gap. As our advocate and high priest on that cross. He pays our debt. So that that we can be redeemed. And then he dies He rises again so that we can have some restoration, some hope, some joy and new life and resurrection. And he leaves and he says, I'm coming back. And when I come back, all will be restored. All will be made new. A new kingdom is coming. And so we see, I just want us to have hope as we step back from the story of Ruth to see that even when things are bad in our own lives, even when things look bad across the world, that our lives are so limited in what we're able to see. One narrow, tiny flash of a lifetime. And God has a large plan to redeem all things throughout all history. So there's, there's... Even if things never get better for you, you have no idea what role you played in the deliverance of a people. Elimelech, Malon, Kilion had no idea when they died what their deaths meant. So I want you to have hope, knowing that there's a bigger plan, that God's redeeming people, praising him for his glory and for their joy through all eternity. So we're going to close. I want you to see where this ends. We're going to close in Revelation chapter 5. I want you to see where this is going. I want you to have hope as we leave this place, knowing uh, what's ahead. Revelation 5, starting verse 9. saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever and ever and ever again. We are going to come now and we're going to take communion And we're going to remember the price that our Redeemer paid for our souls. And we're going to give our tithes and our offerings, remembering that everything we've been given has come from God. And we're to be stewards of what he gives us. And we are going to sing praises to our King who is, who was, and is to come.